This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study for April 25th, 2021. We're excited to be talking about DNC 41 through 45 with Heather Sundahl today. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz, and along with fellow Dialogue Foundation board members Chris Kimball and Michael Austin, I'm happy to welcome you all. Those with us live on Zoom today are welcome to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat, as always. We'll also keep track of what folks have to say on Facebook, where we are also live. We look forward to integrating your comments and questions into today's lesson. We are excited to have with us Heather Sendall as our teacher today. Heather is a writer and editor for the Utah Women and Leadership Project, the BYU Arts Pro Partnership, and helps run the Op-Ed Lab for Mormon Women for Ethical Government. She received a BA in Humanities and an MA in English from BYU. Her passion is women's stories. In pursuit of this, she has worked with Exponent 2 for 23 years as a contributor, blogger, editor, retreat presenter, and president. She has also been published in many venues, including Dialogue, Sunstone, and BYU Magazine. Heather has traveled to Botswana and South Africa to interview and collect the stories of the Sister Saints with the Mormon Women Oral History Project. She lives in Provo with three of her four kids, two cats, and one husband. Dialogue is committed to providing a space for the expression of diverse perspectives and for some of the faith's most vibrant thinking, which is why we invited Heather to be with us today. As is always the case, the views expressed in this venue are those of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, BYU, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. As a reminder, if you missed any of our previous lessons, they are all available as podcasts or videos and linked at dialoguejournal.com, where you can also find the entire 50 plus years of the journal with all of its amazing art, poetry, personal essays, fiction, sermons, and scholarship. We'll add today's lesson to the others by the end of the day. We'll begin today with music, Beautiful Savior, performed by Heather's Daughters. After the music, our opening prayer will be offered by Emily Holsinger Butler. Emily hails from New York and currently lives in Provo. She is the eldest of seven children and has three of her own, which is the new seven. She attended BYU, served a mission in Brazil, and somehow obtained a law degree from the University of Virginia. Emily has retired from the practice of law and focuses on keeping her children alive. She also writes books, some of which are published. At the end, we'll close with a prayer by Rob McFarland, whom I'm introducing now, so you know who he is, as Heather has him participate in the lesson along the way. Dr. McFarland teaches in the German European Studies and Women's Studies programs at BYU and writes about urban literature and film the history of social democracy and the European reception of America. He is married to the essayist and instructional designer, Mary Ann Shumway McFarland. They and their family live in the Tree Streets neighborhood of Provo with a dog and nine chickens, named after feminist icons, including Feather Peckmore Sundahl and Chico Okasaki. Rob habitually plants too many tomatoes and likes to clean the kitchen while listening to Brahms Deutsches uh, Requiem. He and Heather are cousins.
Our dear Father in heaven, we're grateful to be able to assemble together this Sabbath morning, that we might be able to pray together, instruct each other, edify each other, and learn how to act together and how to love thee more. Please bless Heather that she might guide us with thy spirit together. We say these things in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Michael, if you would show the first slide. <clears throat> okay. Um, so let me just give a little bit of a background, um, some context for chapters 41 through 45. So Oliver Cowdery and his companions had converted over a hundred people in North, Northeastern Ohio in the fall of 1830. And then they went West as missionaries. So meanwhile, the natural leaders of those converts, Sidney Rigdon and Edward Partridge, they went to New York to meet up with the prophet. So almost overnight, there's a large group of new converts left to their own devices. What could go wrong? So when Joseph arrives in February of 1831, the church was really in flux and it was so brand new that it was hard to even know what the church was. So it was very much in its infancy. Chapters 41 to 44 are attempts to, on the one hand, weed out practices that they didn't want and to purposefully plant the seeds laws of what they did want to take root. And chapter 45 addresses persecution, which of course is a recurring theme throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, along with the idea that the wicked will get their due in the last days. And then while all of this is going on, it's also all under the big umbrella of go find Zion. So we've got a baby church needing to establish the rules of engagement. Okay, thanks Michael, if you'll we're done with that one. Um, I'm a language person. So when I came to this, I, I really was interested in all the juxtapositions. So here's the very first verse of chapter 41. Hearken and hear, O ye my people, saith the Lord and your God, ye whom I delight to bless with the greatest of all blessings, ye that hear me, and ye that hear me not, I will curse that I that have professed my name with the heaviest of all cursings. So right out of the gate, you get this awesome juxtaposition of the greatest of blessings and the heaviest of cursings. Okay, Michael, you put up slide two. So I decided to uh, go through these chapters and um, get back down. So I decided to go through these chapters and really see what pairings I could find. I mean, there were so many Blessings, cursings, disciple, cast out, consecration, common stock, salvation, damnation, mysteries of the kingdom, secret combinations, revelation, deception, day of the Lord, millennium, twinkling of an eye, unquenchable fire, servant, enemy, enabled, broken, gather, scatter, gospel, iniquity, stand in holy places versus curse God and die. Some of this stuff is so descriptive. Um, glory and terror, um, singing and lamenting. So um, take a look at these and be thinking what the purpose of all of this. I mean, I know we have just opposition in all things, but, but beyond that, why are there so many pairings like this and what purpose do they serve? What do they reveal? So as you're thinking about that, you can put your ideas in the chat and then um, we'll get back to them. So um, it, you can end slide. Okay, so chapter 41. Prior to their conversion, many of the Ohio saints under the ministry of Sidney Rigdon, they were living communally on the land of Lucy and Isaac Morley, <clears throat> practicing what they called common stock. But apparently as happens with most communes, it was less than ideal. So when Joseph arrives, he really felt that their model undermined agency, accountability and stewardship. So 41 is an attempt to set the record straight and prepare the saints for the laws that are going to be coming. 
Chapter 42 tackles this head on as part of a literal laying down of the law, as this outlines all sorts of do's and don'ts of the new church. It deals a lot with consecration, clarifying that it did not mean communal ownership of property. Instead, it asks those willing to recognize the Lord as the source of all material blessings and that our job as saints is to be stewards over our belongings, but still accountable to God who asked the saints to donate the surplus to maintain the church and to relieve the poor and build Zion. There's lots of talk of relieving the poor. So I don't know about you, but the law of consecration is a little bit tricky. It feels out of reach. It feels a, a bit celestial or communist, depending on your views. Um, I can remember my dad, big, big temple goer, talking to him about the temple, um, the temple recommend interviews. And he said that when they asked him, do you live all the covenants? He would say, no, not yet. I don't live the law of consecration. And so I, I'm also curious to see how you make sense of the concept of consecration, especially as a temple covenant. So I think that the word consecration, for me, it's similar to the word perfect and that it can really trip us up because it's just, it's too much. It's too, it feels unattainable. So many people, I know I'm not alone, embrace the concept of, of wholeness or being whole instead of perfection. That's sort of how we frame it in a, in a way that gives us something to strive for that feels, uh, I don't know if it's attainable, but it feels, it feels like we could get there. So let me offer a different word from consecration that helps me balance the idea of blessings and obligations. So the word is reciprocity. That word feels more terrestrial to me, both in the sense of less lofty and also very earthbound. So, uh, Michael, if you'll put up slide three. Humankind has not woven the web of life. We are but one thread within it. Whatever we do to the web, we do to ourselves. All things are bound together. All things connect. Okay, that's Chief Seattle. So, I really love this idea of reciprocity. I was introduced to the concept when I was in um, taking classes at, at BYU from Sue Lundquist. She was a, a professor of mine and she specialized in Native American literature. Most of the books we read, regardless of tribal association, embraced the concept of reciprocity. So while I had always thought of reciprocity as being similar to the golden rule, just kind of creating a balance in my behavior, to other people, this Native American view really broadened how I saw it. And it expanded the golden rule to animals, plants, the whole earth. And it includes rules of conduct such as never take more than you need, always leave something for those who come behind. So in most indigenous cultures, giving is not only understood to be reciprocal, but it's an honor. It stresses that everyone and everything has something to give and must share their gifts. And everyone also needs to receive, which is a concept that most Mormons accept intellectually, but have a really hard time putting into practice. I, I have found that, that in my ward communities, people are so happy to serve, but people are really reluctant to being served. It, it, it feels, we don't like it. No one wants to feel like a service project. But I believe that if we engage in reciprocity right, if we are constantly giving and receiving, it kind of breaks down that service project model. So sometimes the exchange is between the same people. So I do something for Emily and Emily does something for me, but other times it's, it's more of a pay it forward. So someone takes care of your missionary child and then you take care of theirs, of somebody else's. And so it all is kind of, you're paying it into the universe. Um, sometimes the exchange is with plants, animals, and the land, acknowledging what we have gained from them and honoring that by being good stewards of our natural world. So as I was refreshing my learning about this, as often happens, if you start thinking about something, then you see it everywhere. I mean, that, that's just kind of, I think, a law of the universe. So as I was refreshing my learning about this concept of reciprocity, 
I started to read a book called Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And there is reciprocity all over it. Hang on one second. We're not quite ready for that. Um, there's reciprocity all over this book. Um, so one of the things she does is she has this really lovely musing about the visually stunning pairing of the golden, of the yellow goldenrod and the purple asters whose hues are opposite on the color wheel. Okay, Michael, now we're ready for slide four. So she says that September pairing of purple and gold is lived reciprocity. Its wisdom is that the beauty of one is illuminated by the radiance of the other. Science and art, matter and spirit, indigenous knowledge and Western science. Can they be goldenrod and aster for each other? When I am in their presence, their beauty asks me for reciprocity, to be the complementary color, to make something beautiful in response. Okay, you can take that one down. So I, I love this concept um, that reciprocity here depends on difference. Um, we get so much when we're thinking about consecration and thinking about Zion that you have to be one. And um, our minds frequently reduce that one to sameness. But I, I really think that in this, these Native American concepts, you see, as you know, with the body of Christ, that there really is, um, that it demands diversity, that, that true reciprocity and this kind of true communion um, insists on things really being different. So in chapter 42, the law goes beyond Moses and tells us to care for the poor and the sick, to love each other to mourn, to share the gospel, to be loyal to spouses. There's lots of spousal loyalty. And it's interesting that this is all um, pre-polygamy. <laughs> so while the saints believe that they're looking for a physical Zion, the laws that are laid out are teaching them how to have a communal Zion. So I believe that reciprocity is a really lovely framework for Zion people as it encompasses the commandments to love God, self and neighbor, and I would add the earth. In a Zion community, we all offer what we can. <clears throat> there is no fair or even exchange. The atonement of Christ takes our offerings and makes them enough. The body of Christ metaphor is a lovely example of reciprocity, as I mentioned, and the dependence on difference, one and many at the same time. Okay, slide number five. All right, all things in the world are two. Our my, in our minds, we are two. Good and evil, with our eyes, we see two things, things that are fair and things that are ugly. We have a right hand that strikes and makes her evil and a left hand full of kindness near the heart. One foot may lead us an evil way. The other foot may lead us to good. So, so are all two things, all two. And that's Eagle Chief, who's Pawnee. So I'd like to turn to the chat now, if you can, Rebecca, and what are people saying about, about juxtapositions and the opposites? Like what, how do people make sense of, of, of all these pairings? I don't know if we have any answers. Folks are really loving um, kind of this framing um, and thinking about kind of how, how and why, um, we're reluctant um, to be served. Um, that has okay. to do with uh, an emphasis in the church on self-sufficiency, um, and and the kind of hierarchies that we set up that keep us from, you know, wanting to be on that lower end. <clears throat> that, yeah, that we've, that we've set up, right? Um, yeah. Well, people can think, keep thinking about it, and we'll we'll come back to it. So. Um, so DNC 3827, um, I want to read this again because it says, if ye are not one, ye are not mine. And so <clears throat> for me, I really want to reinforce that that oneness is not about conforming, but about complementing. Again, the idea of 
the, the, the yellow and the purple being on opposite ends of the color wheel and that when they're brought together, it makes them both <clears throat> more than they are individually. That we need all of these opposites, the head and the heart, male and female, binary, non-binary. Um, and in some ways we need these pairings because the end of days will yield to the millennium. That winter yields to spring, death yields to life repentance yields to forgiveness. And so we, um, we can make sense of these, these opposite things in a lot of different ways, but I just, I really wanna focus that in Zion, there is unity in our diversity and that our diversity can create a unity. So, um, and I wanna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell a couple stories about service. Um, Rebecca, I'm glad that people identify with that because that's something I, I think we all think a lot about. And, and what is our relationship um, to consecration? And, and you know, what, is it, what does it mean? So I'm gonna tell you a couple stories of how I've seen reciprocity in my life from our time in Boston. We lived in Boston for 22 years. I had all my kids there. And one of the things about Boston is that most people in your ward don't have any other family in the ward. Most people's family is spread out. And so by necessity, you become, really become like a ward family. So in the first story, I am the receiver. And in the second story, I am the giver and both times reluctantly. Okay, I'm gonna tell you about my daughter B's baptism. When you live someplace long enough, you develop patterns and rhythms of doing things. For many years, I had a group of friends with kids my kid's age. And we realized that when a child is baptized on the other side of the country from family, that you, the mom, have so much going on with company and making sure that the right size jumpsuits are clean and managing not having freezing water or boiling water, that it was, it was best if your friends took over the whole after party and if they planned and assigned the food or refreshments so that you could try to enjoy the event. You didn't even have to ask. It was just assumed that the others would handle the details of setup and food, clean up, and feed all those relatives from out of town. Well, when Beatrice was turning eight, the bulk of my baptism posse had moved and I felt so lost. I vividly remember sitting in the back right of the chapel a few Sundays before her birthday and I was feeling really sorry for myself. I knew I could count on people to help, but it didn't feel easy. And I felt reluctant to walk up to someone after sacrament and said, hey, I need you to bring a crock pot of soup that'll feed 25 people. But the spirit was having none of my pity party. I felt impressed to go row by row all the way to the sacrament table and really think about the people and my connections to them. Directly in front of me was a woman who had brought me a meal when I'd had surgery, connection. Next up was a family that one of my girls babysat, connection. Then there was a family with a kid that my son had taught in primary. Next was a man named Tony Kimball, who was the best nursery leader. And then a family that had asked me to check their kids' heads for life and on and on. On each row was a connection. We were united in our service to each other. And I knew that instead of having four friends who would have my back, I had an entire congregation. I asked people for help and they went above and beyond. Okay, Michael, show slide six, which is just one of my favorite, favorite pictures. So this is, Sheila Camo, who was my daughter's primary teacher, and Sheila volunteered to make me a baptism cake. Now look at that cake. Look at Bee's face. She knows she is loved. And I mean, Sheila and I were friends, but not, not super close, not close enough that I would have felt comfortable, you know, saying, I need you to do this. But, but Sheila, she just saw my need and she filled it. And B's baptism of all of my kids' baptisms, it is my favorite because the most, so many connections were forged on that, on that day. And it's a testimony of the reciprocity we find as disciples of Christ. And it reminds me that as we serve each other in any capacity, we are creating connections that will support and sustain us. While it is much easier to be served by and ask for help from friends, it is incumbent upon us to reach beyond our inner circle and strengthen our communal bonds. 
If we are to build Zion, Zion, we must all serve and all be served by all. Okay, you can end that slide. So this next story I'm gonna tell you is a story that I have been telling for over 20 years. I tell it when I teach young women, I tell it when I teach Sunday school, um, I tell it everywhere because <clears throat> I, I learned some, I learned some really good skills. <laughs> okay, not all of our service efforts feel reciprocate, reciprocated or even appreciated. Let me share with you an incident where I struggled with anger and frustration that came to a measure of peace through the principle of reciprocity. A woman in my ward had a history of extreme neediness and we ward members were like the characters in Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, living in mortal fear that we would be called as her visiting teacher. I counted myself lucky that I had been spared. Then one fateful August day, let's call her Bonnie, I got a call from California where she's vacationing to tell me that her foreign exchange students are very angry with her and threatening to leave unless someone goes over and cleans the house, which she swears she left spotless. So Bonnie has been trying to get a hold of her visiting teacher who I know has done endless service for Bonnie. So like Katniss Everdeen wanting to spare her sister, I closed my eyes and said, I volunteer as tribute. So then I asked her where she kept her cleaning supplies and she waffled and I soon realized she probably didn't have any. So I loaded up my cleaning supplies, got someone else to watch the kids and I drove over to her house. I will not give you a full description of what I found. Let's just say there are caves that are more hospitable. As I cleaned, I got mad. How dare this woman hijack my day because she literally cannot take care of her own mess. Then I thought of Margaret, her visiting teacher, and my heart softened. I was not doing this for Bonnie. I was sparing Margaret, whom I loved. I could clean for Margaret. This was sufficient until I got to the bathroom. I had to take out my Swiss army knife. This is pre 9-11 when you could still have a little Swiss army knife on your key ring. I had to take out my Swiss army knife to dig the soap scum out of the dish over the sink that was surely there from the Reagan administration. As my blood pressure rose, I decided to think of all the good women in Relief Society who are angels of mercy in caring for the physical needs of their sisters. I was cleaning for Relief Society. Then I got to the shower and the rainbow of mold that awaited my scrub breasts. Sorry, Relief Society, not enough. Here I decided that I was cleaning for the church as a whole, serving on behalf of the restored gospel and all the souls that made it up, past and present. Fine, I could do it. Next, I tackled the toilet. It was really scary. I had to apply some muscles to work on the stains. And so as I was you know, scrubbing under the rim, the brush slipped and flipped up and sprayed me with toilet water. I was so mad. I sat there dripping, wanting to strangle Bonnie angry that I had been suckered in, angry at her for taking advantage of all these women. I closed my eyes and I took a deep breath. It was a mental crossroad. I exhaled and said aloud, I am cleaning for Jesus. It became my mantra. As I finished, as I wiped down the porcelain exterior, I said it again, I am cleaning for Jesus. I kept saying it as I made her place habitable. I'm cleaning for Jesus. Now this did not make the stench less foul or the dust bunny smaller, but I was no longer angry. And I knew that even if she did not appreciate my sacrifice, the savior did. Even if she didn't deserve it, he did. Now, let me be really clear here. I am not advocating that we become martyrs or enablers and spend our days scrubbing toilets for people who can scrub their own toilets. <clears throat> but there are times in our service the same that we have to dig deep to find <clears throat> the means to serve with a willing heart. And for me, choosing to see the Savior as the recipient made a huge difference. Since then, I have babysat for Jesus. I have cooked for Jesus. I've done airport runs for Jesus. I have even waxed arms for Jesus. Recently, my 19-year-old daughter was tasked with keeping an older woman whom I'll call Aunt March 
she has dementia and she had to be quarantined in her room at a nursing home. And so we had to have people 24 seven keeping an eye on her. So Aunt March was highly agitated and she kept threatening to leave the room. So Millie received a text from our friend that told her that the surefire way to keep the flight risk calm was to rub her bare feet with lotion, which is great unless you have a moderate to severe aversion to feet, which Millie does. So when Millie walked in the door after her shift, I asked how it went. She simply said, mom, I rubbed feet for Jesus. And I don't know if I've ever been more proud of her for doing that. I really believe that as we serve the least among us, we serve him. Um, in verse 38 of chapter 42, it says, for inasmuch as you do it unto the least of these, these you do it unto me. That's reciprocity. And I don't think anything can bring us closer to our heavenly parents than serving and being served. So I don't know, Rebecca, does anyone have any comments or anything they want to share at this point? Yeah, um, so there's a number of comments. Uh, uh, we tend to elevate the importance of those called to serve in traditional positions of visible leadership, right? And that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, implies, again, kind of this hierarchy, but this reciprocity idea implies that no one deserves greater respect or recognition because of, of, of that. Um, I'm thinking too that that some of the things that, that and this is inspired by a comment, that, that what makes it hard for us to open ourselves to reciprocity um, has to do with how we, we measure uh, and see how much, how much we give and take, um, that it's about, we're mm -hmm. thinking about what we get and what we give rather than, than kind of being in relationship and, and being part yeah. of this whole, right? Um, and I really loved the, the Native American um, uh, kind of philosophy and thinking that that you brought into this that really I think captures captures the way to think about um, reciprocity and consecration. Um, yeah. Moral. Chris, do you want to jump in? No, I, I pointed out here. It's pointed out here that reciprocity is a is a topic in cultural anthropology and in economics, and it's there's an interesting relationship there to um, that topic and what you're talking about, Heather, that um, one idea of reciprocity is, is like a barter. I give you, you give me back. Uh, there's another way of thinking about reciprocity that, that has a whole set of um, trading relationships where there's a, there's a quantification. Now I give you this much and I get that much from the community. Um, but there's also a, a, a whole community sense that I think you're talking about. And I, I think it's worth bringing that out. A, a sense that, I, that, the, that the ethic of the community is one of, of, of giving to each other in a way that doesn't have a strict kind of quantification or trading, uh, like a simple barter system, that I'm getting help in one place and I'm giving in another mm -hmm. place to another person. And I yeah. think that's the kind of reciprocity that you're talking, that your stories illuminate anyway. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think it's worth bringing that out. Yeah, yeah, it's not, I think that we have to, when I initially think of consecration, I think of it as things, I'm giving this and then this is given to this other person. Whereas reciprocity, it's, it's, it's all in these relationships. And, you know, sometimes you'll have a friend and you do something for them and they're like, oh my gosh, now I owe you. And I'm like, no, 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 there is no owing. There's no owing in friendship because everybody gives what they have. And what I have to give is different from what you have to give. I don't want back what I give to you because whatever that is, I have that. But I'm interested in, in the way that, that all of this reciprocity it's like we're building a building and everybody puts these different bricks up and we're all the mortar. Everybody's kind of filling in the cracks wherever, wherever they have extra, whether it's you know a lot or a little. So. Yeah, there are a number of people who um, you know, are, are thinking about um, <clears throat> this idea of not everybody has 
the same thing to offer. <laughs> and that's yeah. what really makes it beautiful, right? And we wouldn't want that. Um, there's also, uh, I think, bringing in your uh, kind of the opposites and the juxtapositions too, right? We often mm -hmm. think about that in terms of choices between good and evil, but reciprocity mm -hmm. in, evokes this kind of um, complementarity, um, mm -hmm. the, the kind of difference, right? Uh, yeah. I also really appreciated a comment that, that talked about um, how intersectionality and that kind of framework helps us to recognize uh, and accept and navigate juxtapositions and mm -hmm. this kind of complementary, um, you know, nature of building, <laughs> building Zion. Yeah, um, because every, every different identity that we have that we bring with us brings another lens, you know, and so that's why you need more and more diversity. So in my job with the Utah Women in Leadership Project, we, we do a lot of research on, um, on boards and, and commissions. And, and what happens, what you see is that the more homogenous they are, they're really at a disadvantage that the more diversity you get in there, they make decisions faster, they're more profitable, they can tackle really complex things. Um, and that's why, you know, within the church, I feel like it's so important. We need to really work on whatever the decision-making decision -making bodies are, is getting diversity. Now, diversity can look like a lot of different things. It can mean young and old, abled and disabled. I mean, the most obvious is to have, you know, racial and ethnic diversity, but while we're striving for that, there's lots of other diversities along the way that, that we can incorporate. I mean, I've, I've found that, um, that incorporating people who are neurodiverse can really add a lot to a conversation and can bring things that I would never in a million years ever have seen. And, and so I'm, I'm really grateful for those differences and I, they make the whole stronger. Yeah, there are some comments to do about um, going along the lines of, you know, progress requiring diversity. It's an evolutionary concept. And, and that other way of thinking, right, where it's hierarchical is so deep seated in our larger culture. I'm mean, okay. thinking of um, Anna Julia Cooper, African-American, um, early uh, kind of proto-feminist uh, who, who, who kind of pushed back against the, you know, there are, there's a hierarchy of races and people and civilizations mm -hmm. and, uh -huh. uh, and really made the case that where kind of evolutionary progress comes from is from, you know, kind of different people bumping up against each other and coming together and kind of creating something new, oh, right? But she's really I, arguing yeah. at the turn of the century against this deep-seated, um, you know, idea of being one as being the same and, and progress as being about kind of this one and notch, we, right? We do want to hierarchicalize everything. I mean, I, I do. I, I don't even realize I'm doing it. So I have all these little side hustles. So my other job, I work with BYU. I'm working with the Native American Curriculum Initiative. And my partner in crime is a wonderful Navajo Diné woman named Brenda. And she was talking, we were talking about something in her childhood. And I said, okay, so looking at yours and your siblings, you know, which experience do you think was better? Who do you think had more advantage? The ones who did this or the ones who did that? And she just looked at me and she's like, um, neither are better, they just are. And I'm like, okay, profound moment. And then two seconds later I said, okay, but really, but if you had to pick, <laughs> like I, it's so hard to escape our need to, you know, hierarchicalize, to, to have everything be ranked. Like it's just, at least in Western culture, it is so my instinct that even when somebody completely brings it totally to my face, I'm still like, okay, yeah, but still. <laughs> Which one? Uh, yeah. I, lots, I, of, lots of other great. Go ahead, Chris. Oh, I see Emily um, with a good comment that uh, you should just click off and click off your mute and make it directly, Emily. That's that's why you get to be yeah, on the screen. Yes, Emily. <laughs> no, I think that's a second Emily Butler. Oh, a second Emily Butler? Okay. Weird. It is a very good comment. I wish I could take credit for it, but. Why don't you go ahead and read Emily Butler's oh. comment? <laughs> the other Emily Butler says, 
I've always thought one of the traps in mainstream Mormon thought is that we still treat reciprocity as fundamentally transactional. I'll give you something, then someday someone will give me something. But I think that's one reason we find it so hard to be either giver or recipient. That's always quantifying and trying to make it all yes. equal. I'll come out even in the end. Yeah. And, yeah, I'll and, bring in a comment from Facebook too, from Melissa Lovett Harris, who says um, that that we've got kind of this a community of care versus a community of commerce. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But you look at the Savior and the Atonement, and there is no fair. The basic premise of the Atonement is that it's not fair that we screw up, and the Savior is going to come and make up that difference, and there's no way we can ever repay. It's essentially, it's not fair. And that's okay. That's, it's okay that it's not fair. So. Yeah, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich says, um, so when you do something for Jesus to add to the overall community by modeling unearned gifts atonement. Um, and uh, so that comment uh, made me think too of, uh, and what you were just saying, um, I'm thinking about Elder Renlund's talk from this last conference, right? About yeah. being stone catchers and yeah. from, from that, Ryan Stevenson, that concept. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, I'm going to move to chapter 43 and we're going to get to Emily, this, this Emily. Um, so chapter 43, the context for this was that a new member was claiming to have revelations for the whole church. So just like 41 and 42 are saying, here are the rules, 43 answers the question, who's the boss of the church? Spoiler alert, it's the prophet. Mm. But we are still free to seek out the mysteries of, and get personal revelation. So verse 16 says, and ye are to be taught from on high, sanctify yourselves and ye shall be endowed with power that ye may, be, that ye may give even as I have spoken very individual. It's you and God. But as with most of these chapters, there is still this juxtaposition that instructs the listener, listener not to get too comfortable and go spiritual cowboy. There's a tension in these opposing cues on the color wheel of revelation. So I think you need both of them, um, but you've got to pair it. So my favorite verses in this chapter also in, embrace this idea of reciprocity. And I was reading them. And then I went on Facebook and I read a comment from Emily, my dear friend. We have been a friend. We have been friends on four continents. I think she's probably the only person on the planet that I can say that about. Um, and she wrote something on Facebook that just really spoke to me, and I think works in this. So Emily, if you'll read those verses and then share share with us. Okay, I'll just read what I wrote. Um... I went to church this morning. Within the first 15 minutes of the service, there was so much to unpack. My mind and heart were overflowing. If there was one thing going to church taught me as a child, it was how to endure hours and hours and hours of grueling, stale, repetitive talks without flinching. I could go almost an entire day staying in place on a pew and just sort of blank out. And if you're my age, you know that several times a year, this was required. The ability to endure has arguably served me well, but at a certain point on a certain day in a certain sacrament meeting, I realized that I couldn't and wouldn't take it anymore. If someone didn't say something that provoked something in me or challenged me or gave me a reason to feel joy, I would leave. This was in my late 20s, so it's safe to say I had really given our worship services and zillions of auxiliary classes and meetings the old college try. Anyway, someone said something a minute later that was like an arrow to my soul. I don't remember what it was, by the way, but I just remember that feeling and how immediate it was. Immediate it was. Um, since that day, I have never attended a worship service in my own faith or any other flavor when I haven't learned or felt something deeply. In fact, once that spigot was turned on, it's been hard to turn off. So I don't know if that's just a question of growing up or maturity. Um, I just got to the point where, you know, I can go to church now. Um, with the idea that I am going to get one thing and it can come at the beginning of the meeting. It can come from someone sitting in a pew, two pews behind me. It can come. It's the very last thing that's uttered in that meeting, but I always get one thing and I need it. So I just, 
I, I made that as I challenged myself with that and was uh, it was given to me almost the very next instant. And I'll tell you what, that was really great on Christmas because in my ward, we sort of split our ward up alphabetically. And so we meet twice and space out and do all of that stuff. And on Christmas, we had two identical Christmas programs with the same music and the same speaker. And when I was a child or even up into my twenties after my mission, if I had to sit and listen to the same talk twice, I would have wanted to kill myself. It was just, it was too much. But now on Christmas, I realized um, when the brother was giving his second Christmas identical sermon, I had only gotten up to the middle of his talk the first time around because he had said so much that my sort of, I had stopped listening was just thinking about it. So it was very useful for me to hear it one more time an hour or two later so I could start at the middle and listen to the end of his talk. Um, and that's just, that's how it is now. I can't get that sitting by myself in my bedroom, you know, reading a really great book or whatever, um, and just sort of giving myself the opportunity to just be alone. It doesn't serve me in the same way as actually going and being with my brothers and sisters. Which is why I love this Dialogue Sunday School is because it has allowed me the community sort of, you know, in, in verse eight, it says, and now behold, this is in 43, now behold, I give unto you a commandment that when you are assembled together, you shall instruct and edify each other. And then in nine, it says, and be sanctified by that which ye have received, and you shall bind yourselves to act in all holiness before me. And I have received that in this Zoom space when I haven't been able to, to physically do it with, with church. And I, and I know most of us are all over the place in our feelings about <laughs> the, the, the joys and sorrows of being gone from church and the joys and sorrows of returning. <laughs> so, well, thank you, Emily. Okay, chapter 44, they're holding a conference they're supposed to go find Zion. And I love at this point how they're still so fixated on Zion as you know, X marks the spot. Um, they're told to get organized politically to feed the poor. So I wanna give a plug for Mormon Women for Ethical Government. If you've ever wanted to get engaged politically, if you wanna write an op-ed, I can help you make that happen. So, um, okay. So chapter 45, and this is where I'm gonna have Rob come in. So there's rapid growth in Kirtland. There are 2000 locals and you have hundreds of Mormons showing up and these locals feel really threatened. And so what you have is um, some persecution going on and it's a long chapter back and forth between punishment, Zion, end of days, blessings, scourgings, burnings, refuge. I mean, you get whiplash reading this chapter. And so I have asked Rob, if he'll talk a little bit about persecution and uh, what it means to be persecuted and why the scriptures often kind of bring out these threats of hellfire and damnation. Well, it's one of my least favorite parts of scripture because we get in here and over and over again, it's, ne it's a necessary part. It's a part where people feel threatened. This is a new church. You call it the baby church. And there are people threatening our babies, right? And, and uh, we need to kind of also set separate ourselves away. But on the other hand, um, Levinas talks about the danger identity and invariably as humans, you know, back to this idea of hierarchy, we are ourselves because we are not someone else. And we're excellent at saying those are the people that we are not. So that's why we are who we are. You know, my neighbor has this sign and, you know, this flag waving, uh, you know, from, and that, oh, I am so not that. And so I am who I am. And this is a really, really problematic idea. The idea that we separate ourselves. I mean, there's, there's something holy and, and beautiful about stepping away from the world and, uh, and sanctifying yourselves. Um, but there's also a, a potential because every time in the scriptures and everywhere else, it's really easy to see ourselves as the victims of this kind of thing and that the others will god is going to come in and he's going to knock their brains together and and put them to right because we're the victims here and but it is just as easy for us to become the perpetrators of something like this and in a day and age where we have 
such power and um, you know, a, a big organization. And uh, it, it, I live here in the tree streets in Provo, you know, where we just by our sheer number outnumber the people. Um, it's very, very easy to, uh, to roll them over and to have them be the victim of something that we are perpetrating upon them. And I think it's really important for us to understand, to look inward and, you know, not expect God to, uh, to, go out and, and, and thrash the nations with, you know, uh, et cetera, for, uh, to protect us. But, but how do we instead build down those hierarchies? How do we create reciprocity outside of our community as well? So that we're not saying, well, you know, this is who I'm not. How do we, how do we hug a Trumper, dude? How do we, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. Thanks. Or it shouldn't have been. <laughs> So it is tricky when you feel like you have been persecuted or done wrongly, and they found all these studies in psychology that it really does help people feel better to have somebody recognize their pain and acknowledge their pain. And so you see God do this. You see God come in and acknowledge and recognize the pain. But then the Lord does this interesting thing where then you know, he, he's validating you, but then he starts talking about your blessings and these other things. You can see that the Lord is shifting, trying to shift them out of the mode of, of just being victim and wanting punishment for the other people. Um, and so I think there, there really is power in validating people, um, but there's danger in getting trapped in our suffering and pain. It really denies us our full range of humanity if we get stuck in our suffering. Um, so Michael, will you put slide eight up? That's seven, go to the next one. I think I skipped that one. So why, why do we need to share our stories, especially of pain? And I think this goes for the scriptures, for us as a people, and it also goes for us as individuals. Telling your story while being witnessed with loving attention by others who care may be the most powerful medicine on earth. Every time you tell your story and someone else who cares bears witness to it, you turn off the body's stress responses, flipping off toxins toxic stress hormones like cortisol and epinephrine and flipping on relaxation responses that release healing hormones like oxytocin, dopamine, nitric oxide, and endorphins. When we tell our stories and others bear witness, the notion that we are disconnected beings suffering alone dissolves under the weight of evidence that this whole concept is merely an illusion. Um, you can get rid of that slide. So I, I really think that that is what the Lord is often doing in these scriptures. Um, the scriptures document these oscillations in life, paradise and alone and dreary world, sin and salvation, the pride cycle, Zion, Zion, Babylon, the last days and all their horror and the promises of the savior, so much opposition. And in lesser ways, our lives mirror these oscillations. And the actual balance of pain and joy are not as important as the way we make sense of the pain and how we frame the joy. So I have always loved stories and quickly I've learned to see the therapeutic power of narrative. So let me share with you an experience that illustrated this, this up close and personal. <clears throat> so Michael, you put up slide nine. Okay, so in, um, 2015 and 2016, I went to Botswana and then South Africa to interview women of faith with the Mormon Women Oral History Project started by Claudia Bushman at Claremont Graduate University. So, and the questions you start with growing up, how did you find your faith? But there were three core questions that Dr. Caroline Klein had in there that were really central and that were really transformative. So number one, we would ask them to tell about a time when they had to make a hard decision. And these were stories of cheating spouses, abusive boyfriends, HIV diagnosis, really big faith crises. And as they were telling their stories, both, both the teller and the, me as the listener were really overwhelmed with this trauma and this pain. Um, but I witnessed their pain for them. And you could see that, that in some way, just the sharing of the pain was validating. The next thing that Caroline asked was, tell about a time when you believed you received revelation. 
And in every instance, the women tied that back to the hard times, and they were able to see how the Lord had guided them through. The way people recount experiences to others seems to shape the way that they end up remembering those events. They reflected on their own spiritual instincts and how far they had come and that they were better women now. Putting these two questions together encouraged the women to see how the Lord helped them navigate their trials, how they were brave, resilient, powerful, how they had loving heavenly parents who watched over them. 45, 35, uh, chapter 45, verse 35 says, and I said unto them, be not troubled for when all these things shall come to pass, you may know that the promises which have been made unto you shall be fulfilled. So God is saying here, no matter how things, hard things are, I will keep my promises. I will be there. I see you. However, a story ends happy or sad, we carry some of that with us. So Caroline inserted a third question that was really important. It was the final question, and it really turned their hearts to a healing future. The last question was, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And this allowed them some distance from the past, distance from the pain, and they could articulate their best hopes and dreams for themselves and their families. It's asking them to tell me about their vision of Zion. They smiled as they pondered their babies big, testimonies strengthened over time, covenants made, goals reached. Near the end of 45, these two verses seem to be doing the same thing for the saints, showing them that despite hardships, their future is bright. And it shall be called the New Jerusalem, a land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the Most High God. And the glory of the Lord shall be there, and the terror of the Lord also shall be there, inasmuch that the wicked will not come unto it, and it shall be called Zion. The way someone imagines their future seems to affect the way she sees her present and past. And at the same time, their past informs what she expects of the future. So while the interviews invariably started out with women wondering why I'd want to interview them, every single person said they had nothing of consequence to share. But by the end, the subject and the interviewer knew how important they were as daughters of God and how much their stories mattered. It transformed us both. So one can look at section 45 the same way that we help these women frame their lives. There is suffering, yes, but God sees our pain and will support us through it and promises a better future. Reclaiming the narratives allow us to justify faith and hope in the face of evil and suffering. I believe in this narrative reciprocity. If we take care of our stories, our stories will help us heal. Both opposition and reciprocity will help us to become a Zion people. And that's it. <laughs> Thank you, Heather. If it's okay, we'll do a little bit more discussion before we sure. officially close. Um, so, so kind of the, I, you know, I think you're, you know, telling stories this, and truth telling, sharing pain um, is, is one way, um, you know, we build down our hierarchies, right? Um, and move away from that mm -hmm. kind of self-sufficient um, vision of Zion. Of Zion. Um, I think you're really helping me at least to, um, to, to, kind of come to terms with, um, you know, this, this vision of Zion of self-sufficient individuals, which is not actually what it is, right? It's about a community, building a community um, where we're sharing in um, pain and joy and, and growing, right? Uh, and that growth comes from our, our, our interaction. Um, lots of comments about, um, uh, kind of our how how we keep um, kind of turning to that self self reliant um, kind of focus within the church and and what can we do to to really uh, move away from that? I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like at its base level, the the home and visiting teaching or ministering or whatever. I mean. I really want that to disrupt things um, because I think it's when we interact with each other and serve each other in these various ways, um, you know, I mean, I can be self-sufficient, but still have somebody help me. 
That doesn't mean I'm not self-sufficient. I mean, these people around me are my resources. I wanted to, no, I didn't want to jump in then because you were, you were presenting in your wonderful lesson, Heather, but I, I do wonder if the self-reliance isn't a, uh, a, a later, like a 20th century adoption of a Western cowboy ethic and isn't really gospel in the first place. And um, I, 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 I would challenge at least for discussion purposes, whether that's something we need to integrate or something that we can qualify or set aside. Well, whenever I'm looking to challenge something, I look to the savior. Was the savior self-reliant? Didn't Simon of Cyrene help carry his cross as he was walking? Wasn't he really upset that his friends didn't stay awake with him? He wanted them there. He, he wanted that community. Um, the savior was always asking people to help. Yeah, and in the, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead, go ahead, Rebecca. Well, uh, you know, I'm thinking about, um, you know, the story of the woman taken in adultery that Elder Renlund um, brought in mm -hmm. to, to talk about, um, you know, our purpose is to mitigate unfairness, to, to, um, to engage in this sort of reciprocity, right? Where we're taking care of each other. Um, and that's how we're, we're really at one. But, um, but what the savior does in that, in that story is he gets these people who are, you know, this self-sufficient model, right? And this hierarchy of sins and I'm done this and this person has done that. Um, and get them to think about this woman's story in a new way that reflects on kind of who they are and what their challenges are in life, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I had a different, a slightly different direction I wanted to go, uh, or at least talk with you about, Heather. They, um, we talk about community and I guess I relate this back to consecration. I mean, consecration in the church um, gets phrased as consecration to the church. Uh, and then we have to think about what is the church. And one, one way we think about that is it is our ward community uh, that we've been in a way separated from. And uh, I, I think it was David Boyce had a, had a nice comment um, reminding us that we were, mm -hmm. that when we're brought back to our wards, we're brought back to people who are not like us, who, I mean, who are mm -hmm. mixed together geographically yeah. as a geography. And that's a form of community where the, the, the consecration to that or the sharing within that community is sometimes a challenge or a learning experience, depends on how you... Mm -hmm how you bring it up, uh, but isn't this, um, this Zoom session and what things we've learned this last year as we've done these dialogue programs, as we have um, learned to communicate with each other in, in a churchy, in a gospel, in a way, uh, Kind of challenging our question, our, our sense of what is our community? What is what is the church that we are dedicating ourselves to? This body of this body of Christ, which is it's hard to think of as 13 million people, but it is easy to think of as 150 or 200 families in a ward. Mm -hmm. But now, what is it? Now, what is it in this uh, in this Zoom world? Yeah, it's, it's been tricky. And I feel bad for these primary children who in most instances have been totally left in the dust. Like they, they have not had anything for, for the primary kids. And, um, and so my, I, that's my calling as I teach primary and my companion, um, the two of us have made it a goal that every week we connect in some way with our primary children. We write a, a letter, we drop something off. And, and the parents are blown away because of course, everyone has more than one child here. <laughs> and so they're seeing this difference that they have one child whose primary teachers are making sure that they are seen as an individual and that they are served in some way. And, they, and, and that kid feels so, I mean, it's not like, the, it's not like we're giving them awesome stuff, like a dollar store puzzle, you know, or like a, 
a lollipop. Like it's, it's nothing special, but um, all these little things add up. I, I just, I really do believe that it's all these small acts of service to all the, the different cleanings for Jesus that, um, that really can bind us and, and create unity. Amen. Uh, thank you, Heather, for your thoughtful, insightful lesson. Um, we've been really blessed today. Uh, Rob? Hi. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks, Heather. Um, and I'm going to give the close to Paul. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the many blessings that we have. We're grateful to be able to gather on Zoom. We're grateful for the opportunity to have a technological possibility to connect with people and to hear stories that resonate with us and to contribute and have people uh, appreciate our contributions. Dear Father, we ask thee in this time when so many people are suffering and so many people have lost jobs and have had to relocate and have kids at home and uh, when everything is so disrupted, please help us to be thy hands and not only thy hands, but thy eyes and ears, and that we can look and feel and find those families that need our help. And these things we say in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've Amen. been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts.